0: listening to a podcast from the national. The first day of Iraq's new parliament was a chaotic one. Where does the new government go from here? Also, the US administration is proposing a solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict, but it's a proposal that has been out of favor for a long time. Why has the US-Palestine relationship become so fraught? We'll discuss both Iraq's new parliament and the US-Palestine situation with the National's foreign desk in this episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host Nasr Iraq's first parliament session on Monday got off to a stormy start. The Prime Minister Haider al abadi put himself in charge of government security forces, including militias led by a political rival. He made a bold speech and then walked out of the proceedings after addressing parliament. But al abadi wasn't done. Afterwards, he said he was assuming the post of national security advisor and head of the Heshta al-Shaabi, the largely Shia paramilitary force mobilized to fight ISIS. The major political bloc stormed out of the opening sessions without achieving their first task of electing a new speaker. Factions throughout the convoluted political landscape of the country are jockeying for political control. Some align themselves with the US, others are Iranian loyalists, and Muqtada Sadr, the populist cleric who won the majority of votes in the May 12 elections, rejects both. The conflicting alliances and vacuum of a coalition government increases chances of a political fallout surrounding Iraq's next government. It harkens back to the failures of Iraq in the past and has the Arab world watching and hoping for a strong nationalist Iraqi government that rejects Iran's influence. For more, we turn to Mina al a reporter on The National's Foreign Desk who covers Iraq. Many were expecting parliament to walk out, but I think Mr. al-Abbadi's statement was a surprise. What does this mean for him and his alliance with Muqtada al-Sadr?
1: So Prime Minister Haider Abadi put himself in charge of government security forces on Monday, like you said. And this includes the Hajj al-Shaabi, who are a largely Shiite paramilitary force that were mobilized to fight ISIS um, along the Iraqi um, army. So these militias are, are led by Mr. Abadi's uh, rival, political rival, Hadi al-Amri. And this was all announced after the first session of Iraq's new parliament, which got off to a very stormy start. Um, it's important to note that Mr. Abadi also assumed the post of national security advisor. And this was because he dismissed um, the previous advisor and the previous chairman of the Hajj Shabi, Faleh Falih uh, Fayyad, who, for reasons that he says, he was too involved in government formation talks. And he, Mr. Abadi claimed that this undermined his security role, so he dismissed him last week. So the move it increases political turmoil um, surrounding the formation of Iraq's ne- next government, which was not only delayed by challenges to the results of uh, of uh, the elections over alleged fraud and and voter riggings. But I I don't think this would affect uh, Mr. Abadi's alliance with Muqtada al-Sadr.
0: Is the Husha' al shaabi aligned with Iran, and if so, how does it factor into Muqtada al-Sadr's attempt to remain? uninfluenced by Tehran,
1: So the Popular Mobilization Unit, or Hajj al-Shaabi, as everybody knows them, they're an umbrella organization of about 50 paramilitary groups. Their participation in politics and possibly in government remains controversial in Iraq, um, as well as in the region where the Hajjid um, leaders are seen as proxies of Iran. So, I mean, Iran views the Hashd as an insurance policy against the return of a strong um, Iraqi state that's supported by the U.S., and Saudi Arabia, and one that's controlled by an enemy such as ISIS. So for the Iraqi government to denounce the hashed as as, a, as an Iranian proxy is, is therefore likely to backfire. The challenge posed by the hashed will not be easily overcome. I mean, they're seen as a significant military, political and economic actor in the immediate post-ISIS um, Iraq. And they are seen as as um, as an entity that helps support the Iraqi army in defeating this um, the insurgents, so they're praised by al Abadi and a lot of the a lot of the Iranian backed politicians in Baghdad.
0: Let's go back to the opening session for Parliament. What does this mean? And did they achieve anything substantial?
1: So unfortunately, Nasir, nothing substantial was achieved in the opening session of yesterday's meeting. Um, the first session after an election is always important and very vital as MPs get to elect a new speaker and his deputies and then they will later elect a new president and then task the leader of the largest bloc with forming a government and choosing a prime minister. But yesterday's session was suspended uh, usually, what happens is the uh, the prime minister, the president, and the speaker they get to address the new parliament, and then after that, MPs are sworn. Are, the new MPs are sworn in, but it was suspended after Nouri al-Maliki, the previous prime minister, and Hadi al amri his um, the the leader of an Iranian-backed uh, militias, al Shabbi, they stormed out of uh, of the session. So the issue with with yesterday's session was um, there's a two uh, two opposition coalitions, one that's led it's between Miss Al Abadi and the populist cleric Muqtada al Sadr, who are vying for uh, majority support in parliament against one that is formed by Mr. Al amri and Nurin Maliki. So the problem is that both groups are claiming to have put together um, support from the majority of MPs. Um, Mr. Al-Sadr, Mr is political bloc one, most seats, he portrays himself as a nationalist who rejects American and Iranian influence, um, while Mr. Abadi is seen as the preferred candidate in the US. Um, and Mr. Al-Amri and Mr. Maliki They are Iran's two most prominent, um, let's say, allies in Iraq. So there's been a lot of um, sort of uh, clashes between who's going to be aligning with who to form um, a majority coalition in parliament so that a government can be formed, basically.
0: What does this mean for the public as they continue to hold demonstrations around the country due to Poor basic services and high unemployment rates.
1: Nasr, the public will continue to protest. There's been a growing unrest in southern cities over pu- poor public services, unemployment, corruption for months. Just last week, thousands of protesters they stormed um, the provincial government's headquarters in the southern, in the southern oil hub of Basra, demanding again for better services and and um, and just clean water. Just, again, last week, I spoke to officials in, in, Basra's health, in Basra's health ministry, and they told me that over 18,000 people have been, ad- have been admitted to hospitals over illnesses that are contracted from polluted drinking water. People are continuously telling me, you know, if the central government in Baghdad doesn't take any steps to eliminate this crisis, it's going to lead to a disastrous catastrophe. You know, Haider Abadi's caretaker government has said that it's going to release funds to improve water supplies, electricity, and health services. But residents say they've not seen any improvements. So they will continue.
0: Earlier this week, President Trump's most senior advisors proposed the formation of a confederacy between Palestine and Jordan in a meeting with the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas. The Palestinian leader replied saying he would only agree if Israel was a member of the confederacy as well. His comments veer away from his traditional position of a two-state solution, but many are saying the latest proposal is a hammer blow to the Palestinian people, and the latest string of U.S. policy decisions favoring the Israelis. I'm joined by Jack Moore, assistant editor on the National's Foreign Desk who's reported extensively on Palestine and is following the latest. What is Trump's overall approach to the Palestinian-Israeli issue?
2: His approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict since he came into office has largely been to support the right-wing government of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his policies. Those policies are basically to advocate for a greater Israel, and that is to extend beyond Israel's borders into the West Bank and to ensure that there will be no Palestinian state. And to that end, Trump has been going against all of the final status issues that Palestinians seek in any peace deal that will end the conflict. So he's been going against the refugee issue, the right of return. He's been going against Jerusalem as the capital of a Palestinian state and statehood generally. Um, He's relocated the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem against Arab protests. He's cut all funding to UNRWA, the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees, which helps millions of Palestinian refugees, not just in the West Bank and Gaza, but also in Jordan and Lebanon. He's failed to condemn settlement building in the West Bank by Israel, which is considered to be illegal under international law by the majority of the international community. And the latest revelation is that his team has proposed a confederation between the Palestinians and Jordan. And to that end, he has put in the team to support this government and Israel's policies, that's Jared Kushner, Jason Greenblatt and David Friedman. Jared Kushner is his son-in-law. Jared Kushner's parents uh, and their company have funded Israeli settlements. David Friedman, the ambassador, US ambassador to Israel, has funded settlements himself and Greenblatt's on message. So he's put the team in place to do this. And the approach is best summed up, I think, by a part in Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, which is that Trump's strategy to foreign policy can be broken down into three parts, and that's states we can work with, states we cannot work with, and people who are powerless that we can sacrifice. Now, he sees the four big players in the Middle East as Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. He believes Washington can work with the f- first three, cannot work with Iran. The Palestinians to him appear to be powerless, and they can't offer him much. The
0: Confederation solution has never been really factored into the conversation. What does it mean that it has been proposed as a solution now?
2: It's interesting because this issue has been off the table for decades. I mean, Yasser Arafat, the leader of the Palestinians in the 1980s, rejected a Jordanian proposal for a confederation because it wouldn't give the Palestinians an independent sovereign state. And in 1993, the Oslo Peace Accords were based on the idea of the Palestinians achieving their sovereignty eventually with an independent state. But now that this has been offered shows that the, the Trump administration is not taking into consideration the Palestinians' views, what they want for the future, and that they are siding with the Israelis. Because the Israeli far-right has long advocated for the Palestinians joining a confederation with Jordan. They perpetuate the myth that Jordan is Palestine. It shows just how far the Trump team is prepared to go to move away from the traditional parameters of the peace process that has been based around the two-state solution. It shows that they're not willing to consider the Palestinians having an independent sovereign state that they seek. Now, Palestinian officials have told me that they would consider Confederation with Jordan, but only if they got their independent state first. They wouldn't consider it now. And the same for Jordan. They wouldn't consider a Confederation if it didn't include the Palestinians having their own state.
0: You mentioned what it means for Jordan, but why are they so opposed to the idea?
2: They're so opposed to the idea because pushing millions of Palestinians into a confederation with Jordan without their own independent state would change the dynamics of Jordan. And it could make the country an alternative homeland for the Palestinian people, taking their own idea of our homeland off the table. Um, And Jordan is obviously a big supporter of the Palestinian cause. It also threatens the Bedouin community in Jordan, which thinks that if millions of Palestinians move into Jordan or become part of Jordan for a confederation, they will lobby for full rights in that country and they would become a minority and they would lose out in any confederation. That's one concern. And the Jordanians I've spoke to said, that, again, it needs to be a state in a state, not a state and a stateless people. They believe that this confederation offer is a deception on the part of the US to bypass the Palestinian dream of, of a state and deprive them of what they ultimately want and push that burden and that dream onto the Jordanians and taking it away from from the Israelis
0: it seems that the u s administration has a pattern of dealing blows to the Palestinian people, siding with policies that actually promote the Israeli interests. Why is Trump so keen on implementing policies that clearly favor the Israeli side, and what's in it for him?
2: I think it just comes down to three simple things: it's power, trade slash money, if you will, and support So by siding with Israel, as I said, he sees Israel as one of the four big players in the Middle East, one of the three that he can work with. And Israel's powerful. It always has been helped by the US, they have strong historical ties, and it's important for him to side with the country that can help him the most and help US interests where he thinks the Palestinians cannot. Whereas Barack Obama thought it was the right thing to do to try and help the Palestinians achieve a two-state solution and achieve their dreams. In terms of trade, Israel's a big trading partner of the US, buys a lot of military hardware, gives it a lot of money, so that's important. And then thirdly, support. I mean, it plays to his evangelical base to implement policies that favour Israel. And it also looks good for him to his donors who helped him get into office. So his top donor was Sheldon Adelson, who is a, a casino magnate in Las Vegas. He gave $80 million on the campaign trail to Trump and other Republicans. And he's a key figure in the embassy move. He offered to pay for part of the embassy costs. And he also provided a jet for Guatemala and its delegation to fly to Jerusalem for the opening ceremony. Um, And after the US embassy relocated to Jerusalem, Guatemala followed suit and said it would open its own embassy. That's how it appears at face value, you know, that he's helping his donors out and and their wishes as well. So playing to his base and helping his donors.
0: You mentioned the How the U.S. administration has veered away from Obama's policies, but now that Trump and Kushner's have control of the situation, they seem to be the ones that are handling the Israeli-Palestinian issue. What are the prospects for Palestinians?
2: I mean, it's a very worrying time for the Palestinians. There's little hope of peace for them. The U.S. has left the Palestinians in a position where they can't negotiate. It's it wouldn't be acceptable for Palestinian leaders to enter into talks with an administration that has recognised Jerusalem as Israel's capital when you have some of the holiest sites in the Muslim world in Jerusalem. And it holds such importance to Palestinians who want it as a capital of their future state. It also is worrying for the region as a whole, because if he cuts all this funding to UNRWA, it could destabilise camps in Gaza, Lebanon, Jordan. And it's particularly worrying for Jordan because it relies heavily on foreign aid, gets about a billion dollars, I think, in US aid. Uh, It's one of the poorest Middle Eastern economies. We could see Trump pull aid from Jordan next and try to apply pressure on Jordan, as he is doing to the Palestinians. As Hanan ashrari said, political blackmail um, by cutting the owner of funds. And what, what I think the Palestinians will do now is just, again, go to international organisations, embark on a, another strand of this diplomatic intifada. They'll look to Russia. They'll look to China. Look to the European Union for help. But really, their only hope is that Trump leaves office, and that someone comes in who is favorable to their position. Because with the US back in Israel, it looks very dire for the Palestinians at the moment.
0: Thanks to Jack Moore and Mina Drubi for their insights. Also thanks to Kevin Jeffers for producing. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines to receive new episodes each week. You can find this on your preferred podcasting app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Audioboom. Also, follow along with the developments in the Middle East on our website, thenational.ae. I've been your host, Nasr Al-Wesmi. Thank you for listening.